Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero. This guest is the son of German immigrants. He grew up in the D.C. area, spent most of his time in Maryland, actually, a graduate of the University of Maryland. He is on a mission to educate the planet about some of the greatest Americans who've ever lived. And those are our first ladies, the wives of the presidents of this great country. His stories are candid. They're real. They're factual. And I really think you're going to enjoy this guest today, Andrew Oak, who is all about freedom. And I thank you for listening to Straight Outta Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio. Audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero is a person that I met a little over a year and a half ago. At an event at Fort Bragg, or actually, I'm yeah, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, we were doing an event for, or he was doing an event. We were there to support it for Tactical 16. It's a little bit of a diversion from our normal show, but this is actually great, great subject matter. His name is Andrew Oak, and Andrew is an award-winning television producer who has traveled the world in search of provocative stories and adventures, and you're going to hear more about those today. 2012, he began an historical journey as he traversed America for over a year, documenting the the lives of every first lady of the United States of America for the C-SPAN series, First Ladies Influence and Image. The series aired in 2013 to great acclaim and helped reveal the untold stories behind the ladies of the White House. I got to tell you, Andy's been on a serious mission. He's been putting out a lot of great content. He's got a few books that are out there. We're going to talk about them. And this is important to our whole mission to support freedom. These ladies who support their husbands in the White House have interesting stories of their own. And I got to tell you, Andy's been on this crusade, if you will, to tell those stories and do it in relevant fashion. From Martha Washington to Michelle Obama and our current first lady, Mr. Oak was given an all-access pass to some of the nation's most treasured collections and historical landmarks. Andrew Oak, the unequivocal first lady's man, pulls back the curtain on the public and private lives of this unique sorority of women. With the largest complete collection of video and interviews about America's first ladies that exist anywhere on the entire planet. These, the women that helped build America, and it's all about the ladies. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hey, thanks, John. It's great to be here with you. It's funny. I'll start off just by saying every time that introduction or similar introductions get read, I'm always sitting back thinking, I'm like, wow, man, this sounds pretty impressive. This guy did a lot of stuff. And then I realized that you're talking about me and it, and it takes me by surprise every time. That's how how unsuspecting I was that I was going to get this journey and, and be given this gift and, and this access and Now what I see is a responsibility to teach the world about the leadership that has been the first ladies over the uh, course of of the uh, the history of our great country. Absolutely. You know, when I first met you, you know, with that event at Fort Fort Bragg, we uh, I didn't quite get it at first. You know, first ladies, man, I'm thinking, what is this guy doing? And then the minute I heard and met you, the minute I heard that it was American history, it was like, holy cow. Andrew's on to something really cool and something that's relevant in today's world. It seems like sometimes that they hang up American history these days and you're bringing it back to life in a big way. So before we get to how you got to where you're at with this concept and this story and this mission, tell us a little bit about you and how you grew up. Okay, well, sure. Um, I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., probably about 30 miles outside of Washington, D.C. I was a pretty normal kid, been playing drums since I was seven, played in a lot of bands, toured a lot of bands, done a number of albums, played a lot of big clubs with some big names in the 90s, and and I still continue to play and, and record today. 
I've always loved the outdoor. I was raised by a, a by an outdoorsman, and we liked camping. And my mom and dad and brother were a small, tight family. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a mechanical engineer or a government contractor. Pretty typical middle class family. Lived at the beach uh, while I was in college over the summers, and went to University of Maryland, uh, where I was a radio, television, and film major. At the time, I thought I was going to need to know how to make music videos for my band. Uh, to a certain degree, that held true. When my band broke up and we came off the road, I was left kind of adrift. And and I, my dad, for the for the first time ever, he said, "Why don't you use your college degree? Start calling up some news agencies, some television stations, and put your degree to work if you like." I've always been a storyteller. I've always enjoyed the art of communication, whether it be through any number of of forms of media, music, uh, radio television, film, and now, you know, the internet and webcasts and all the great technology that's available to us. But after a pretty, pretty long and successful and, and, and as you mentioned in the intro, award-winning a television career on a number of different projects, I stumbled upon some friends at C-SPAN and that's where I got into the, uh, the first ladies man project, but I, I didn't, I didn't seek it out. I'm not a history major. I think that's part of, uh, of my passion is, is that it's true. It's, it's, it came to me late in life, and, and as these women revealed themselves to me through my research for the project, that's when I, I realized that, that even growing up outside of Washington, D.C., with politics right in my backyard, I'd been to the White House several times for personal and professional reasons. I'd traveled with presidents, uh, been to embassies. Uh, my career had taken me all around the world, but, be, but having complete access to the Smithsonian growing up and just the, the general benefits that this area afford uh, uh, people, especially with the, with the political aspect being so close to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., I was very surprised that not only did I not know this stuff, but I wasn't taught it, and, and, and no one really was or, or is with any kind of specificity, and learning about these women and what great Americans and great, great humans and human, humanitarians uh, they were just really, really appealed to me. And, I, and, and having that access and being that I was on the road for so long by myself with seven bags of gear, real guerrilla <laughs> filming warfare almost with zero schedule flexibility and, and almost no resources and only myself to, uh, to either you know, cry at my failures or, or regale in my successes, uh, I decided that, that I, I really wanted to succeed because I don't like failure. And uh, coming out of it, I end up this sort of rain man of of first ladies that I can just talk and talk and talk and talk about it. And it's been a, it's been a fantastic ride. So I appreciate being here with you tonight. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting, you know, you mentioned DC and the Maryland area and, you know, there is so much history there. I mean, it just, sometimes it's hard to find the right word. It bleeds history. There's an aura of history around it. And, you know, did you have, you know, you obviously have a great love for the first ladies and we, and we get that, but was there anything coming along that you may have picked up on military in the background in your family or somebody else that may have just taken a real keen interest in American history? Was there, was there any of that going on, Andy? My mom's no longer with us, sadly, but my, my father is. And one of, one of, when I turned 18, my dad told me that there were two very important things that I was going to do. I was going to enlist in the draft and I was going to get to vote. My dad is the son of, of immigrant parents from r- basically right off the boat from Germany. In fact, October 28th, as we sit and record this, is my grandfather's b- birthday. He was born in 1907, one of the first American-born Oaks. And um, my family has always been very patriotic. My dad did not do military time or serve as he was already out of college when Vietnam was going on, and he was serving a a military need in the work that he did. He worked on surface-to-air weapons, submarines, and uh, missiles. Actually, I think did some some work on the Tomahawk missile that was so successful in Desert Storm. So he was serving his country in that way. Um, all of my uncles, of which there are three, uh, were Air Force, uh, Navy, and uh, and Army. Uh, my girlfriend's father is a, a Navy doctor. And even when he had a family of, of five in his 40s, he went back and did active duty in Desert Storm on the front lines as a, uh, as a, 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 a field operating surgeon, doctor for the Navy. And traveling 
and being outside of Washington, D.C., where you get to see all these. My, my dad's a big Navy guy, too, as he worked on so many ships and submarines and things like that. Was also very close with my uncle, who was in the, the Navy. He was a radio man during the war. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side worked for the State Department as a geologist and always traveled on diplomatic assignments in trying to help uh, allies and foreign countries find oil and resources in their country. So America's pretty important in my family and, and always has been. That's an awesome story. You know, so similar to so m- many of us, you know, my dad was born here too. And first generation America at or Croatia, they actually, when my granddad got here, they actually put down that he was German because I guess Croatians weren't looked at too nice. But, but anyhow, you know, just like you, everybody in the family had something to do with America, which is truly the melting pot, whether people believe it or not, everybody that's a citizen here, they didn't come from somewhere, their family came from somewhere. And and that's what we're all about. So the fact that you've taken on the mission that you have makes it even more important because it's what we're all about. And these women, like you said, exemplify some of the very best humanitarian people on the planet. And one thing about America, as you well know, we, we like to give. So Tell us, you know, because we met through Tactical 16. How did that work with Tactical 16? How did you link up with those guys, Andy? That's actually one of the greatest parts of the story because long, I I knew uh, Eric and Kristen Shaw, the founders of Tactical 16, long before I was the first ladies man. Uh, Eric was just uh, out of active duty. had gone back on a couple different tours. I I believe Afghanistan could have been Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Um, and and he was my next door neighbor. He and Kristen and their and their daughter Kayla. And, and I think it's Kayla's birthday as we record this too. I think she just turned fifteen. So happy birthday to Kayla and happy birthday to my papa. And just great neighbors and great people. And I knew what what they did for a living. And they were trying to transition into civilian or semi civilian life. And I was uh, working on Capitol Hill as primarily a news producer, but I'd done some documentary work and and some work for ESPN and some other some other things like that. But anyway, uh, we kind of we just talked over the fence. And I know Eric had tried a couple different things and wanted to wanted to get into uh, law enforcement and other security details and things like that. And 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 it, the more he was trying, and Kristen was going back to school, and they were a young couple with a young child and trying to buy a house and just get a little reap a little of the rewards that they'd fought so hard for in a number of different uh, affronts. Uh, I think most significantly, Eric, in in, in Iraqi or, or Afghani elections, I, I believe that he did security for the U.S. Army. And just like I say, great people. And and um, the, he, w- he, was, he was not meeting with great success, as, as I recall. And it was because he was still in active reserve. And I thought, well, w- what, a, what a crappy deal, you know? I mean, like... He can't get a job because he might get pulled back to active duty. Like Hmm. you should suspend all work to be able to fight for your country or protect the the freedoms. And none of it made sense. I mean, my God, if if, if anything, we should be giving our veterans houses and and jobs and things, not not preventing them from having it. So when Eric started the, the publishing company, it was more out of frustration, I think. He just had a story to tell, and there was no outlet to tell it. So, I mean, you know even better than I, John, that, that military people, when they see a problem, they fix it, or they, they get hands-on. So Eric decided to start this publishing company so he could publish his own book and tell his own story. And he had no idea how to do that. He didn't right. know what the heck was going on. And they ended up having to move because they of the area and couldn't find a house here and ended up back in Colorado and buying a house and doing great things there. And when they started this publishing company, I was looking for a news story for a holiday weekend. I told the senior producer of this weekend news show, I said, listen, I got a guy. I said, he, he's a true American hero. He's, he's, he's fought, his, his whole family is, is military. And, and when he couldn't find a day job trying to transition out of active duty service, he started his own publishing company so veterans could tell their own stories unedited, uninhibited, with, with, with freedom of expression. And and um, and freedom of speech. I thought it was just a beautiful story. And man, they gobbled it up. So we put them on the air. They had, I think, one ebook out, and and the response was so great. It crashed their website. Their sales spiked, and all this other just great stuff. And he just kept. He couldn't thank me enough. I said, Eric, it is my God, man. It is the least I can do. I'm just a television producer doing my job. You're on there telling the story. You're doing the thing. So anyway, I, I put him. 
we got him on one more time when 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 they started getting more authors and more books and and the same thing happened crashed the website doubled tripled sales all that selling out of books and all this they might even add some physical copies at at this point i think this might have been around 2010 2011 and and then fast forward to 2012 13 13 and, and 14 i do the c span project and started speaking on these first ladies and became this expert and had gone on this adventure that no one in the world has done what i've done not yeah. that i've found that way there's plenty of people that know more about eleanor roosevelt than i do or or or, or more about martha washington or jacqueline kennedy or nancy reagan who I, but but no one is, has been to all the places i've been to and knows as much about all of them as a group as that unique sorority of of women that i like to call them and i uh, someone told me if i would write a book i could get more speeches well, uh, you know, as most people do with going to the gym or diets or whatever kind of accountability we need in life, and to almost make it real, I went on social media and I said, well, the public speaking career is going well, but I've, I've been told I have to write a book. So I'm, I'm doing the one thing I never thought I would do. I'm stopping talking and I'm starting writing. And Eric contacted me and said, there is no one else who's going to publish your books but Tactical 16 because you're a cornerstone of this publishing company for putting us on the air and believing in us. And I said, you're giving me way too much credit. But but because because no, no other publishers were lined up banging down my door, I said, you got the job, brother, because it's a it's a short list. And we had a good laugh about that. But we've had a good ride. And I've, I've become, I believe, the, the top selling author on Tactical 16. I wanted to sell a thousand books in the first year of publishing volume one, and we sold over 2,000 in less than a year. And when volume two came out, it doubled the, the volume one sales, and they're still selling to this day, and I, and I couldn't be more grateful to Tactical 16 or the fans and, and people that are interested in these stories and, and, and buying my book. I'm extremely humble. That's a great story, Andrew. And yeah, I mean, I... I like that story. I like it when somebody, you know, first of all, like you said, he couldn't find a job or was having difficulty transitioning back in. And then all it took was that one push got you going. Then you, then it came back around where you actually needed some of his help in a a, a unique way. So tell us about, you know, it's funny, man. Tell us about writing the book and what that was like writing the book, you know, book number one. And tell us about that. Yeah, well, John, that's that's a that's a great story because I've I've worked in political TV with a number of people who who had written books. I've re- worked with people that had public speaking careers and had done stuff outside of TV and things like that. So I I, I knew it could be done. I've always been a, a, a writer, uh, even in college and things like that. But the the thought of sitting down, I I had I had not a clue. Just not a clue. The only thing I knew was that my publishers were super cool and they were letting me do anything I want. And so I pretty much just opened up my MacBook and started typing. My name is Andy Oak. I'm the first ladies man. Here's what I did. Here's what I went. And here's why it's important. And it starts with number one, Martha Washington. And I just started writing lady by lady by lady, chapter by chapter by chapter, page by page. I tell you, man, I set my own deadlines that I didn't meet. I set some deadlines that I did meet. But but the one thing that I kept laughing about and talking with some of my, my friends who were published several times is that it's a real pain in the neck to write a book. It, it is much cooler to have written a book than <laughs> be writing a book. But But when you look back on the process, it's so cathartic. And when Eric told me that writing these books and publishing these stories of these veterans helped with PTS and some of the other issues that veterans, combat veterans, were dealing with coming back out of the military theater, uh, I, I get it. I, I, I didn't even, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of my own personal stories came out of this because it was my own little uh, uh, adventure. Uh, you know, I mean, like I say, it, it was. I mean, there was there was a staff at C-SPAN. There were people back in Washington D.C. that did a lot of great work, but out on the road. It was just me. It was me and seven bags of gear. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've heard that. I've heard what I've heard is, you know, write a book. And and I, you know, you've written books. You've been out there on the speaking circuit. You've been doing some awesome things. And I know there's people out there listening that probably were in the same boat that many of these 
authors have been in or these pre-authors, I guess, they're told to write a book. And I love the fact that you bring out how how cathartic it is, that it actually, it could be therapy for some of these folks is what I'm hearing. 100%, man. And and I tell you, I always joke and say, you know, well, you know, writing a book really stinks. And I never, I said, I'd never do it again. And then I went and wrote a second book <laughs> and I kind of laughed at that little self-deprecating and thing. It's just one of those things that went, you don't realize how awesome it is until it's done. And again, I, I never, I never served. I've got a lot of friends that served obviously with, with Eric and, and so my, my, one of my closest friends in life is Navy again, boy. I say I'm just always brought back to the Navy. Maybe I should have joined the Navy. I don't know. <laughs> but my buddy, my one of my closest friends in life, Brian Filler, served on the USS Forrestal before going into college and joining me at University of Maryland. And and it just, I just, I have the utmost respect for that journey, and and I would never compare myself to that. But it's but everyone has their own deal, you know, and everyone has their own stuff. And everyone takes their own journey and has their own battles and wars and conflicts within themselves or within their family. Just, you know, it's part of life. It's the ups and downs. And it's just one of those things that I think that, like, even when you're in the thick of battle and things look their grimmest, when when you come out on the other side and you realize what you've accomplished. I mean, but I've, I've written over... Over 300,000 words between the two books. And when you look at that on a Word document and you see how many words are out there, and then that that case of books gets delivered to your house and you open it up, I cried. I, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say it. And I still, however many years into this, I, when someone buys a book or asks me to sign a book or hires me for a speech or has me out to their group or whatever, just could not be more flattered because someone is taking time out of their day or or money out of their pocket, their wallet to support my cause, my interest, my mission. And it's it's almost weird, man, because you asked before, you know, was was there American history in my family or this? I mean, no, no more really than than too many other people in this area. Again, we've got the the wealth of of historical artifacts and happenings in Washington, D.C. is is basically our playground and, and politics is our sports around here for sure. But I mean, you know, none of my family were elected officials. My mom was a teacher, but she wasn't a history teacher. I took history classes that I needed to take, but nothing special, not even in college. I didn't gravitate towards American history or, or anything along the lines of this. But when I was just smacked in the face with these women and these stories, I will say this. My mother was was just a, a remarkable individual. And I know most people think that about their mother, but 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 other people thought that about my mother. She was a unique uh, individual. And, and it's sad that she never got to see any of this. I was talking with my dad about it earlier today. I know how proud she would be. And I know that this would have been her favorite project ever because she did like education and learning and experiencing life and travel and adventures so much that this really would have been right up her alley. But but I was taught by my dad and my mom, you know, growing up, my dad's birthday wasn't important, but but damn if my mother's wasn't. And 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 if I ever crossed my mother, there there was there was hell to pay and respect for women and respect for for their position in, in life and, and giving us life. And and my mother was 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 one of the most important things growing up in my house. And and I, I owe a lot to her. I definitely got her creativity and her, and her gift of gab, as as you can see displayed here, um, but but seeing seeing these great women and and what they did with with no pay, they're not paid, they're not elected, yet they're criticized to the hilt. Worse and worse every 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 year, every administration, every cycle. It it seems that it just seems to get more ferocious, and they don't have to do anything. They're doing it because they they happened to marry some guy that thought it was a good idea to run for president, and then against all odds he won, and then she had to to just perform this job and this duty of which she was not elected. She's not paid. There's no job description. Of course, there's the the predecessors who came before them, but but they really they do not have to do anything. They are not required by law to do to do anything. And out of the goodness of their heart and the support for their their husbands 
and their family and the love for their country since before the Revolutionary War and before we even called them First Ladies, these women have been answering the call to duty and doing it to the best of their ability with no formal training and, like I say, no, no pay or, or, or definition of job. And, and, and I don't know many people that do that in life. The way you just described that, not many people hear that. You know, they just take a lot of things for granted. And a couple of things, you know, one of them, you know, as you described your own mother, and I'm sorry about that and and, uh, that she's not here with us today. But in reality, she is because whatever she instilled in you, you know, a a motherly figure, you know, then it's carried on in the work that you're doing with with the First Lady's Man mission. You know, tell us a little Uh, bit about the first book. Tell me. One or tell the listeners one or two, maybe three details about some of the first ladies in that book that, that, you know, without giving away the whole book, but, you know, tell us some interesting things about some of those women. Well, here's the amazing thing. So this is the way I broke it down. And and another good buddy of mine, John Croft was, he's he's just a real Zen down to earth, reasonable guy. And I was freaking out because I wasn't hitting my own deadlines. The book was so insurmountable, it seemed. I'd never written a book. There's a lot of first ladies, man. There's more first ladies than there are presidents because some of them die and some of them have hostesses and, and some some are married twice. And it's just an interesting the way the numbers work out. And I was thinking that I would write this book about every single first lady. And he said, why don't you write two books? And I said, well, I've considered it, but I, I wanted – because I did something no one else has done. I want to publish something no one else has published. And he goes, dude, don't kill yourself on this, man. Write volume one and then write volume two. And, and while you're writing volume two, volume one could be paying for your work for volume two and all this other stuff that just made sense. So the way it breaks down is volume one is the 1700s and 1800s, Martha Washington through Ida McKinley. And then volume two is uh, Edith Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's wife, the first first lady of the 21st century, or the 20th century, rather, the first first lady of the 20th century, up to and including Melania Trump. I was able to hold off publishing the second book and finishing the chapters until we knew the, the election results of 2016, and I knew that Melania Trump would, would be the next first lady, so I could put some thoughts down on paper. Uh, there's still... what tons of research to do and things to do. The Obamas don't even have their official presidential library yet and 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 more to come with, with the Trumps and whoever is next after them whenever that happens. And so there's great stuff to do. But here's the amazing thing, I think, when I look back at these books, is it's the ones that we couldn't name or that most people couldn't name or I couldn't name before I did this series that have done so much work, and maybe maybe it's incredible because we don't know it and we don't hear about it, but like Lucy Hayes is one of my favorite first ladies of the 1800s. And people think, Lucy Hayes, I, first of all, they don't even know her name's Lucy. And why would they? I, I don't even know that if you were naming, you know, 20, 30 presidents, if you'd name Rutherford B. Hayes as, as one of those presidents. He's a yeah, wartime you, exactly. president. He's you, a Civil War veteran. You probably wouldn't name him. Go ahead, though. But, but on the tip of everybody's tongue. But Lucy Hayes did so. There's transitional women and there's transformative women. And 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 a transformative woman is someone that, or a transformative person, changes the face of something, changes the role. A transformative is someone who then takes that role and transforms it into their own. And Lucy Hayes did so many things. In, in her in her her young life, in her life as a as the wife of a general of a Civil War general, as the wife of a governor of Ohio, and then the wife of the uh, of the president, the first lady. And if she didn't do the things that she did, then we wouldn't have uh, uh, women like uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and and women that were that were. I mean, she was the legs of her, and of her husband. Her husband was in a wheelchair for polio. She was the longest sitting hu- first lady as her husband's elected to four un- unprecedented and, and unless they change the laws, unrepeated terms, she's longer she's first lady longer than anyone ever will be in history. But you 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 she has Lucy Hayes to thank for for the position that she's in. Lucy Hayes was a remarkably uh, philanthropically minded individual. She was she was hosting veterans uh, picnics and reunions at her personal home in Ohio. 
paying for them. She was not born wealthy. She was not born successful. She's the first first lady to, to attend college, to get a college degree. So another thing, you know, most of these women, John, in the, in the early days were not formally educated. But these were women of natural aptitude and intelligence that would have to hitch their wagon to an up-and-coming man so they could get their ideas yeah. out there, so they could become something in life, so they could fulfill these ambitions that were not guaranteed to them by law or vote or job or wage or education. And when you look at someone like Lucy Hayes, who came from a tiny, tiny town and a tiny house in a tiny town in Chillicothe, Ohio, and, and where she ends up in the White House, it's the American dream. So things like that really took me by surprise. Now, another one that you wouldn't that you wouldn't uh, name, coincidentally, it comes from Ohio. There's more presidents from Ohio than Virginia and New York than any other state in the union. So there's that. It is William McKinley's wife. And William McKinley is the last Civil War veteran to be president. And his wife, Ida McKinley, was the daughter of a banker in Canton, Ohio. And this man, Mr. Saxon, was, was her, uh, her father's name. Ida Saxon was her maiden name. Her father in the 1800s said, you will not be financially beholden to any man if I can help it. And you will work in my bank and you will understand finances. You will have a job. You will have money of your own. And she, she came from wealth and privilege. But what she did with it was she was sent to Europe, as many of these privileged women were, to go on a sort of like a, a walkabout or, 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 or adventures as, as young women. But clearly they were sent with a chaperone who would have been a man, an older man who would have checked out the finances and all these stuff. Ida McKinley or Ida Saxon at the time didn't like the way the finances were being held during the trip, thought the man was a bit of a spendthrift. So she took all of her money back and ran the rest of the trip herself and came back with money to spare and souvenirs for everyone and told her father, she said he wasn't doing things the right way. So I took over and ran the rest of the trip. And, and he knew that he had successfully raised his daughter, that she would not, um, not need a man for success in life. And, and to think about that in the 1800s, man, that is, that's just revolutionary. Thinking. <laughs> Definitely so it, going it, against the grain. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. And every turn, every single one of these women, has some kind of story, some kind of her. I mean, we all do, but these are the women that make it into the White House, and these are the women that change the face of our world. Here's well, the, the, the greatest thing. Uh, one more short one. Okay. I'm just going to ask you about another one, too, so give me that one, and then I'm going to get you on another one. Yeah, so, so, so we would not be America. We would not be in America. Your grandparents wouldn't have come here from Croatia. My grandparents wouldn't have come here from Germany. We would not be America underneath the red, white, and blue flag, speaking the language we do in the accent, if George Washington had married anyone other than Martha Dandridge Custis. That's how important these women are to this equation. George Washington was doing okay. Obviously, the guy had aptitude, a military genius, but he didn't have the money. He didn't have the finances and the things to, to just completely let go of things and start this country and start the revolution. He had to have a sound foundation at home, and he had to have a woman capable of running basically a corporation. Martha Washington is the first successful female CEO of the colonies, the new world, and what would become America. She, from her first husband, had 8,000 productive tobacco acres. She had about a quarter of the real estate in Williamsburg, which was a booming metropolis, a, a hub, a, a cosmopolitan hub of the colonies. She had, when her first husband died, probably four to five times the Virginia governor's annual salary in cash on hand. She was uber wealthy, uber capable, and had the natural intelligence and aptitude far beyond other men and women. And that's who George Washington married. Because if Martha couldn't handle all that wealth, all that land, all of that real estate, all of those finances, George would have had to do it. And if George had to do that, he couldn't have run up and down the East Coast on his horse fighting the British to get our independence. And he writes in letters, wartime letters during the Revolutionary War, I don't think straight without my wife at my side. He brought her at great personal risk to herself and her, her, her entourage, which which, of course, uh, unfortunately, it was slaves at the time 
and things like that. We can't escape that part of our history, and I don't sweep that under the carpet. But she had to travel with this 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 moving staff uh, of, of, of a number of people to get to nearly every 13 of the winter encampments of the Revolutionary War, not, not to do George Washington's laundry and mend his socks. She was an advisor. She was entertaining the French diplomats that were funding the revolution. She was entertaining generals. She was putting political dinners and events together to move the effort forward for revolution. It, it's just, it's remarkable from day one, the influence and power that these women, that these women held. Well, you know, you pointed out something that a lot of people, they may know this, they may not, many probably don't, but you know, when those guys signed the, the Continental Congress, right? These early yeah. revolutionaries, the George Washington, the presidents, and you know, they didn't just put themselves at risk. And you pointed this out, which is great. The women that were alongside these men were at equal risk. Their whole families were at risk. And it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I'm glad you pointed that out. Those are things that, you know, that I don't think very many people think about. They always think about the presidents for sure. And then if it's a flashy first lady, I guess you might see her more. You know, what was like, let's say, like, for instance, President Franklin Pierce. What was his wife like? What was that first lady? Who was she? Jane Pierce, you, you, I, I don't know how you did it, but you picked one of my favorites. It's amazing that you picked that out. The reason why she's one of my favorites is she's just a tragic, tragic story. And it also gave me one of the most incredible artifacts and revelations of all of my travels. Any book that you read about Jane Pierce, you read what a, what a, what a gloomy, what a depressed she didn't support her husband. She didn't want her husband to be president. She didn't want anything to do with Washington, D.C. You dig deeper and you hear some stories. It's tragic stories. She, all, all three of her children died before she went into the White House. And then you read stories about how it was a, it was a pack of sisters that, that they called witches and practicing the dark arts. They, they said that they were coming to the White House for seances, and she was writing letters to try and communicate with her dead children and all this other stuff. I mean, the, the rumors, even back then, I mean, you know, when people get in a mash, you know, man, they can be they can just be horrible, uh, unfortunately. And we, we see that a lot. You yeah, and I have talked offline about social yeah. media. <laughs> yeah. So they were doing it even back then. And, and the sad thing is that, you know, I mean, back then, we didn't have penicillin. Everybody was dying. You could have a duel in the street and not get arrested for, for killing a man just to settle your differences. I mean, everybody was dying. There was no medication. There wasn't clean water. There were diseases we didn't know about. It. No medical breakthroughs of any kind, blood transfusion or any of that kind of stuff. So there were a lot of people dying. There were a lot of people that wanted to communicate with the dead, and a lot of people were doing it. But this woman ended up in the in the White House, so she gets a target put on her back. Not one for physical mm -hmm. harm, but certainly one for for public criticism and scorn, even as far back as then. Well, here's the sad story about all of it. Her final, her, her one son died uh, very early on, and, and that was to be expected uh, in, in certain cases. It wasn't very healthy and, and, and died. The other, the oldest boy, Franklin Jr., or Frank Jr., or whatever they called him, uh, died died of, of like tuberculosis, but, but like well after he should have been past that. So that was kind of a shock. I think he was I think he was 12 or, or maybe 13 when he died. And he should have been way out of the woods at that point to be taken by something like that. So yeah. she had one son left. About this time, uh, Franklin Pierce had retired from the Army and, and had also retired from, from political service. He fought in the Mexican-American War. I was, was injured, was shot, I think, in the Mexican-American War. Came back, became a congressman. Jane didn't want him in politics. Jane didn't want him in Washington. She just wanted her husband home to be with their final remaining son and and go to church and just live a, a good clean life up in new hampshire we had one more task to do for the democratic party and that was to go to baltimore for the for the democratic national convention to nominate someone to be president well damn if he didn't come back the nominee and she couldn't believe it she said i thought you were going there to nominate someone he said well they all want me to do it and i said yes well, then he went and won. And this is the last thing. This is the worst, worst news that Jane could have gotten. So her son was staying at her sister's house in Andover, Massachusetts, which was a short train ride away from Concord, New Hampshire. And she went up to pick him up.
to bring him back. She was her son was staying there because she had been in Boston with her husband at a funeral of yet another family member. So everyone around Jane is dying. She comes back to her sister's house with Franklin to get Benny, their remaining son, to bring him back to Concord, to pack up their house, to move to D.C., to be inaugurated as president. Well, when they were leaving the sister's house in Andover, Massachusetts, an axle broke on their train car only. And their train car, holding the president-elect, his wife, and their remaining, only remaining son, tumbled down a hill. And their son was, by all accounts, basically decapitated in the accident in front of his mother and father. Mm. Jane Pierce passed out. Franklin Pierce carried his dead son down the train tracks, and I've walked these train tracks to the house of the sister where they would have the funeral in the living room. It's a privately owned house now, and I've stood in the living room where the small coffin for the boy sat. Jane was grief-stricken, of course. I mentioned when I was there to the gentleman, uh, his name escapes me right now. It might come to me. I think it was Pete. Pete something was the uh, worked at the at the at the New Hampshire Historical Society had edited the the Pierce papers and all this. I said, he says, is there anything else you want to see about Jane? I said, well, not unless you've got some of those letters she she wrote to her to her dead children that she they claim that her and the sisters in the White House. He said, oh, that thing. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not letters. It's just one letter, and it's not even it's not even a letter more than a journal. And I said, "Wait, Pete, you've got to be kidding! Is this a, is this a, is this real? Because so much of, of history gets romanticized, exaggerated. Oh, yeah. You know, none of us were there for the most part." I said, "Wait, Pete, are you telling me that there is a because le- I've been bit in the rear before going to place and saying, "Hey, is this story true about Martha Washington or this?" Story? And they're like, "No, why do you believe that garbage?" So I just figured <laughs> it was kind of you know, who's who's writing a, a letter to their dead children. And he said, no, it's, it's, he goes, I know the letter that they're talking about. It's, it's one letter and it was never meant to be sent. It was, it was, it was a, it written in pencil, which was a rough draft. So there was never an ink version and we've got it over at the historical society. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, I've got to see this letter. I'm so intrigued by this. Just the mere fact that it was true, that there was a, a letter and I was going to get to the bottom of this basic rumor. It's ghost story. So you look at this letter and in this letter, this poor woman she pours her heart out. She blames herself for the death of all of her children. She blamed God's vengeance on, on Franklin for, for lying about the, the presidency and stuff on, uh, uh, for, the, for the death of their children, for not being a good Christian, uh, just every kind of, I mean, if you, look, I, I, I got, God help anyone who, uh, any parent who loses a child in, in any situation. I, I, I've not been in that situation myself. I don't know anyone uh, too close to me personally who has, but I can imagine that that's one of the worst things to happen to a parent on, on earth is to have to bury their child. And this woman had to do it three times. And the last one happened right in front of her. And you read this letter, this, this basically a journal entry. And this woman says to my dearest son, though your eyes will never see this and then goes to pour her heart out to apologize to this child for not being able to protect him and not being able to secure him in life. It changes you. It changes you to read that and then think that she was criticized and chastised for it and made fun of in the White House by the public. It's just, it's tragic. It's just tragic. It, it's um, definitely some parallels with some of the things that you and I have talked about, how the general public can sometimes, you know, be, be a mob and, it's amazing when that we don't want to get digress, but when the when the mob takes over, uh, good things are sometimes not said, and that's putting it quite quite mildly, I think. Um, yeah, but thank you know that that's those are things that that we're going to find in in both volumes, right? Pieces like that. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, what people well, yeah, at, at nearly every speech, someone will say, who's your favorite first lady? And I say, look, I'm, I'm not trying to spin this because I come from Washington, D.C. I'm not trying I'm try, not trying wordplay, but it's it's impossible. I, I you know, the, the host, Susan Swain from C-SPAN, said at one point during the production of the series, she said, Andy, it's possible that, you know, too much about first ladies. We were talking about uh, Caroline Harrison having a a horse named John and a goat named Whiskers. And, you know, that I know the, the names of the pets of these women and stuff. She just thought, why? I said, Susan, you know, I, I've got to immerse my, 
I got to go in hook, line, and sinker because this has got to be a success for my end because if I fail, I feel like I've let the series down, I've let the C-SPAN down, and not to over-dramatize it, but you know, the American people down that, that, want it, that want this information because no one had ever done a series like this before. And I'm not bragging to say that because it was C-SPAN's idea. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I was just at the right place at the right time. And they knew that my work ethic in, in the field, that, I, that they could send me out by myself. And I would just go and go and go and go and go until the story was told. But, you know, I, I say if, 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 if you held my feet to the fire and I had to pick one, I'll go with Lou Hoover. And people say, Lou Hoover? I mean, again, <laughs> this is like Lucy Hayes. You would not, John, be honest. If I said name 20 presidents, would Herbert Hoover be one of them? Um, probably not. You know, I know. Probably I know, not. Yeah. It would, and 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 you you might not have known that his wife's name was Lou. I mean, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But the the point is that that we just we don't even know some of these women's names. Let alone we would not name their husbands. And if you were naming, you know, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty first ladies, I bet because it wouldn't have been mine either before this series. Lou Hoover would not have made that list. <laughs> Definitely would not register. Most, she would, yes. She is one of the most accomplished, most intelligent, most capable. The things that she did, and this is where I got into a little bit of the, the personal story. As I mentioned before, grandfather on my mom's side was a geologist in the State Department. He was working in North Korea, and my, my mom was living there with him, along with two of her brothers and, and my nana, my, my mom's mother, as the Korean War was breaking out. So as dignitaries and American officials and diplomats in, in foreign countries, they get the heads up before, before the public does, and they, and they get their people out of there for the most part. And my mom was, was basically snuck out with my grandmother and my two uncles, snuck out in the, in the, in the hold of a Norwegian freighter under the, the darkness of night and, and sent to Japan and then Hawaii and then back to the mainland. Well, Lou Hoover and Herbert Hoover did this for Americans back when the government and the State Department couldn't get them out of London fast enough before World War I broke out. So the Hoovers, because they were self-made millionaires, Herbert Hoover, President Hoover, is one of two orphan presidents. That guy didn't have two pennies to rub together. And by the time he was 30, he was a multimillionaire in the, in the early 1900s. Very, very accomplished man. And Lou Hoover right along with him. She didn't come from money either. The two of them met at Stanford, where Lou Hoover was the first woman in America to graduate with a geology degree. She taught herself seven different languages, including Mandarin Chinese. Geology and gems and precious minerals is where they made their fortune. They've been around the world a number of times before they entered into the presidency. They were in the right place at the wrong time when he became president and the Great Depression hits. He didn't cause it. And he certainly couldn't have solved it in, in, in one term. Economic cycles are, are, are weird. And, and the president, I mean, because he's, he's in the hot seat, he gets, he gets blamed for, for hardship and, and credited with success that may not be at, at his hand in, in either direction. But Lou Hoover paid out of her pocket to bring families, women and children of American diplomats in London to safe houses and get them on boats to get them back over to the states where they would be safe. The two of them basically sustained the Belgian lace industry during the entire World War One, and, and later on in life when they established their summer White House in the Appalachian Mountains in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, a little boy wandered into their camp, and Lou asked him where he went to school and where he learned to read and write, which was basically nowhere. The Hoovers, at their own expense again, after paying for their vacation home and their vacation property, I mean, charge the American public nothing. He's the he's the first president to not take a salary, by the way, uh, Hoover, uh, from the American people. Said he didn't need it. Said keep their money. So boy wanders into camp, doesn't have a school. The Hoovers built a school. Then they paid for the teachers. Then Lou Hoover goes above and beyond that with some of the students at the school that, that showed some desire and some, some intelligence and aptitude, she paid for their college degrees, their college educations. Later, when Lou Hoover dies, her office in the, uh, uh, the Waldorf in New York City, they found a box of uncashed checks. Some of these kids tried to pay her back for their college education, and she would not accept their money. 
that is a true humanitarian, a true lover of freedom, a true supporter of the, the American way around the world, around the globe, and we can't remember her name on a large scale. That's phenomenal. That is just absolutely phenomenal. And when I, you know, it makes the title of the book make more sense to me now, unusual for their time, you know, on the road with America's first ladies. And when you, when you frame it like that, Andy, there's no doubt about it. This is the greatest country in the world, not only because of our presidents, but because of the women that stood toe to toe with them and did things like what you just described. And I got to hand it to you, my friend. I'm glad that we met. And, and I love the fact, I love your enthusiasm. You definitely know your craft. You even, Andrew Oak has it down to these ladies' pets and uh, their music, what they love, what they wore. Um, I'm sure you know a lot of nicknames too. What's the funniest nickname? Oh, I, okay. So I do have that. No one's ever asked me that question. That's a great question. Here's a nickname that I thought was cruel unjust and unfair and it was given to this first lady by her own family eleanor roosevelt was called the ugly duckling in her family and none of us were born 80 90 years old with with gray hair or bald in a in a in a bonnet or you know as any of these women are everyone ages and and some do it more gracefully and and than others and whatever and and beauty is in the eye of the beholder whatever kind of catchphrase you want to throw out but can you imagine a poor, a, a young girl, a teenage girl who's lost her mother and her father? Her father is Theodore Roosevelt's brother. That, that the, the Roosevelt man, I could go. That could be a whole podcast. That's an incredible, incredible story. Eleanor Roosevelt was walked down the aisle at her wedding by her uncle, President Theodore Roosevelt, to marry her sixth cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who would then become the president of the United States and her, the first lady. That's remarkable. But if you look back at young pictures of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, I think she's a fine looking woman. I think she's very, very attractive. A classic look to her, always well-dressed, very, very, very wealthy, very pri privileged family, had the finest of everything, the finest finishing schools and everything. But that family called her the ugly duckling. And I just always thought that was horrible because what does that do to a person? I don't care how much money you got. What does that do to your self-esteem? And look what she was able to accomplish. Wow. You know, just another example of exactly what you just said, the cruelty of people, but also unwarranted. And, you know, so you know what? That's a good point. Again, we don't want to digress too much because we want. But, you know, why can't we just be kind to each other? You know, and the way things are these days, it seems, without getting into too much beyond the boundary. Gosh, it even way back then people were being mean to each other. I tell you, man, it, 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 here's, here's the thing, and, and, and this will give historical relevance. It's also a very fascinating story. Year after year, we'll, we'll hear it in the next election cycle. This is the worst election ever. Boy, the, the candidates are jerks. I don't like anybody. I'm not voting for anybody. It's, it's mean. Oh, the mudslinging and, the, and the, the super PACs and the lies. And, and man, they just can't. They're just at each other's throats and the debates. And it's just. This is the worst election we've seen in history. Well, there's one man that if he were alive today would strongly disagree. And that man is the first orphan president, Andrew Jackson from Tennessee. Andrew Jackson will tell you that his election that he won against John Quincy Adams in 1823, I believe, 1820, 21, 22, 23, right in there. Andrew Jackson credits John Quincy Adams campaign machine with putting so much stress on his wife that it gave her a heart attack. Rachel Jackson never made it into the White House, and she never saw her husband inaugurated president because she died about a month before he was inaugurated from what all we can tell from the letters was a heart attack. She did not like Jane Pierce. She did not like politics. Her husband was a wartime general had done a lot for the for the the country as a as a congressman had served and keep in mind John as I know you know back then it was not a great financial gain to be a politician you did not have the book deals the speaking deals you did not get the salaries that you get now you did not have the the six figure consulting job coming out of it or get paid you know quarter of a million dollars for commencement speeches and things like that. In fact, when you went into politics, you typically left in debt. 
But anyway, Rachel Jackson felt that her husband had given enough to the United States and was against this uh, presidential mm -hmm. run. But he went for it anyway. He won and she died. They said horrible things, horrible things. And this is not typical of the time. They were not writing or saying these things about uh, about women at the time. And similar to what we see now with the super PACs and the ads, you know, a candidate could say like, hey, man, I didn't say that guy wasn't really American or I didn't say that guy didn't get arrested or 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 did all these bad things. That's that's. That's this group of people that, I mean, it happens to be my supporters, but I'm not saying that. There's always that deniability. Well, that's what John Quincy Adams said back in the 1800s. He said, I never called Rachel Jackson a pipe-smoking hillbilly bigamist. My supporters did, and I can't really, I mean, there's freedom of speech. They can say what they want. And, and unfortunately for Rachel Jackson, and this will give you an idea of perspective, it kind of rolls into our social media and multi-platform 24-hour news cycle that we have today that that seems well it just it is what it is we'll leave it at that unfortunately for rachel jackson most of that was true she did live in tennessee that was the country they did consider those people to be bumpkins or hillbillies she did smoke a pipe but many women of privilege and and of culture did down there it was a regional thing i know a lot of women you could walk down to any bar in D.C. right now, and women would be standing outside smoking cigars because it's a thing, and now it's socially acceptable. Did she ride a horse? Yes. I know a lot of people with horses. They've got quite a bit of money because horses are expensive, and that's a sign of culture. So to call a woman a pipe-smoking, horseback-riding, hillbilly bigamist, the other unfortunate fact of that is we do not know when Rachel Jackson divorced her first husband legally. But we do know that Mr. Robards was quite a nasty character. He was an alcoholic. He was physically and verbally abusive by all accounts. Now, I don't have too much personal experience directly with this, but I hear that divorces, even these days, can get quite messy. Imagine how difficult it was to divorce a drunk in the hills of Tennessee in the 18-teens. Yeah. I imagine that would be difficult. So she left an abusive situation. She met a man that loved her. They were they were they were terribly in love, Jackson and Rachel. And the election the election ended up killing her. And here's some perspective. The very next man to be president after Andrew Jackson was Martin Van Buren, and he was widowed. His wife was dead 20 years before he even got into politics. So his daughter-in-law was his first uh, lady or official White House hostess, a woman from South Carolina by the name of Angelica Singleton Van Buren. Well, Angelica Singleton Van Buren was everything that Rachel Jackson wasn't. She was young. She was attractive. She was well-dressed. She'd gone to all these finishing schools. And this is what they said about Angelica Singleton Van Buren. They said that she was a delightfully cultured and accomplished equestrian. Now, what is an equestrian? That is a horseback rider. And she is from South Carolina, which you could say that someone from South Carolina, they would have said at that time, not my words, would be a bumpkin or a hillbilly. The lowlands, but she, yeah. They decided to say that she was an accomplished equestrian. And that's the wordplay. And that's the thing that not these women, we have to remember that what's good for one person should also be good for the next. They should be held to the same scales and, and relevance but, you know, it's just the mood of the country, the looks of the person, the clothes they're wearing, the things that they like, their taste. And, and, and for what one woman is celebrated for, another woman will be chastised and criticized. And it's just not fair, especially when they're not paid and they're not elected. Definitely a good point. And it, does, it definitely shows you now you could call it fickleness or the hypocrisy. And it's just not right. You know, the lack of consistency at times. And, you know, what you've shared here today is remarkable because the details, how deep you know it, Andy, is, my God, pretty darn impressive. Let me ask you, <laughs> how, how can people get the book, you know, unusual sure. for their time on the road with America's First Ladies? There's volume one and volume two. Where do people need to go to get it? And how can they reach you if they want to? Because your brain is like, a, it's like a one of those uh, zip drives. I mean, could you imagine <laughs> plugging in Andy's brain into something? You've got That's more. 
That's a dangerous place. Though. No, man, you got more information coming out of there than I've ever seen or heard. But how do people get the books and how can they get you? It's a wacky place up there in my brain. It's fun, though. <laughs> uh, the, the absolute best you can get at a lot of different places. But I should mention here that part of the profits being a tactical 16 author, this is the privilege and honor I have in a way that I can give back and thank the military for my freedoms and my life and, and everything that I have in it for them providing a safe place for me to live is that part of the profits of my book go to directly to Tactical 16, which helps authors, military veterans write and publish their own stories when they don't have the resources to do so on their own. And that's anything. That's buying them a laptop. That's uh, paying their electric bill. That's that's helping them set it up, uh, uh, get people to give them writing class, whatever they need to make that book happen and just have a uh, just have a place that will publish it, not even the financial help, just a place that is a vehicle to get their story out, which helps them greatly. So when you buy directly from firstladiesman.com, that's where the most money, the most profit, the most funds go directly to the troops. So that's why I always encourage people – I've got at firstladiesman.com. You can see the full C-SPAN series. You can get both the books. You can get First Ladies Man t-shirts, the whole works. You can see my speaking schedule. You can also get my books at any live speaking event. I've always got them with me. If you see me at the grocery store, I've always got a, a case or two in my truck because it's happened. People have asked me for that, so I started carrying it. Firstladiesman.com is also where I can sign the book, put a personal message in there for you. And um, that's where you get all my news articles, my videos, my speeches, some commencement speeches, the speech program, everything. You can email me directly, firstladiesman at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All those links are there at firstladiesman.com as well. Awesome. And there you have it, right from the mouth and the brain and the zip drive of the first ladies man, Andrew Oak. I got one question for you, brother. Yeah, man. With reference to all of the women that, who you have studied and admire, what do you think collectively freedom meant to them? That's a big question. I know it, but I know you got the answer. It is, and and I do. I I think you know the first ladies don't always, and and you could even say, rarely represent a political party. What they've typically represented is putting the best foot of America forward. They entertain at the people's house, at the executive mansion. They show what it's like to be an American. They show American theater, American musicians, American talents and crafts and creations. They're into technology. They celebrate when Thomas Edison invented the phonograph they bring these people into the public light. They celebrate the downtrodden. They, from the very beginning, orphans of, of our wars, which have been unfortunate and, and but necessary in protecting ourselves and protecting these freedoms in the world around us. Uh, they have protected orphans of the Revolutionary War, widows of the Revolutionary War, orphans, veterans of uh, widows of the Civil War, on through to, to even most recently Afghanistan, Iraq, all of our conflicts, World War One, World War II. They understand what people have given to give the rest of us these freedoms, and they represent, try to, they try to represent the, the absolute best that America has to offer on any playing field, and they don't discriminate between between race, religion, uh, 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 gender. Um, uh, you know, they 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 often they've got children in mind. They're just trying to do the absolute best to show what is best about America, and the freedom to do that, and the freedom to express that in any way they see fit, without that definition of role. Is is really something uh, remarkable as they help celebrate, which which we which we boast to the world is the most peaceful transfer, even in today's troubled times, the most peaceful transfer of power in the world. As we dance back and forth across the aisle between these political parties, the first ladies are typically always standing for the American people, and and that's that's freedom. I love that answer. And, you know, I appreciate the gift that your mom gave to the world being you, but I also appreciate the gift of your books that you're giving to the world. And uh, I wish you, Andy, continued success. 
I know I'm going to be seeing you again somewhere. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, listeners. Andrew Oak, author of The Unusual for Their Time, On the Road with America's First Ladies' Man's Volumes 1 and 2. You're eloquent. You know your craft. And uh, I'm really honored and humbled to have you on the show today, Andy. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the good rework you do with your organization and helping the troops as you've done your service, your dedication to the country and all the people you help in getting their wishing out. People like me that, that that need an extra push, that need an extra voice just to get their vehicle out. These aren't people with, with big budgets and big marketing things. And, and we've all got something really good to offer, an important plan. And all the people that you help along the way are, are grateful for people that take time out of their day and their work to, to help people like us. So thank you. I greatly appreciate you. You're welcome. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.